Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Triangulation is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Triangulation with Tom Merritt and Leo Laporte. Number seven, Stephen Wolfram. It's time for Triangulation, episode number seven. Recorded on March 16th, 2011, Leo Laporte with Tom Merritt. And in a moment, our guest is going to join us via phone because he doesn't Skype, Stephen Wolfram, the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, and about one of the most interesting uh, mathematicians, scientists, and big thinkers out there. He's a, a physicist by trade. Born Saturday, August 29th, 1959 in London. Did you look that up on, on Wolfram I Alpha? I looked it up on Wolfram Alpha. That's what it said. <laughs> He's best known, I think, perhaps for creating the Mathematica software. He actually did that originally as part of a project, a uh, university project, at uh, California Institute of Technology, where he got a PhD at the ripe old age of 20. Um, he uh, got a, was one of the first MacArthur Award recipients in 1981. And uh, Mathematica is uh, essentially a computer algebra system, or symbolic manipulation program, they call them, SMP. I had a guy uh, I went to college with who was very proud of his Mathematica on a Next computer that he had in his house. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Um, very powerful, and I don't pretend to understand it since I'm not a mathematician, but uh, think of it as a very fancy graphing calculator or, <laughs> or a digital blackboard, perhaps, would be a better uh, description of it. He, uh, in the 80s, actually, I'm sorry, the 90s, wrote uh, and uh, published in 2002 a very interesting book, very thick book, well beyond my means to understand, called A New Kind of Science, in which he basically according to Wikipedia, proposed that the universe is digital in its nature and that simple programs can describe the fundamental laws of the universe. He thinks that eventually scientists will realize this and uh, it will have a, a major influence on physics, chemistry, and biology. Uh, it'll be a new kind of science, if you will. Um, so he continues to, to give con conferences and has a summer school devoted to that. Uh, but... Most recently, he created Wolfram Alpha, which is a website that is not a search engine, but in fact a computational knowledge engine. Stephen Wolfram joins us right now via phone. Stephen, thank you for joining us on Triangulation. Hi. We just went through an entire CV for you. Okay, your thank you. Your well. You didn't have to sit through that one more time. Let me ask you about uh, a new kind of science, which I said right up front is completely beyond my means to understand. But I think our audience, being a technologically literate audience, might be intrigued by the simplified description, at least the one that Wikipedia runs, that says that the universe is digital in its nature and that fu the fundamental laws of the universe can be described as simple programs. Is that an accurate representation? Well, not really. That's kind of a, an, an application of the big idea, but that isn't the, the main idea. It's kind of like, uh, uh, kind of the, the traditional thought for the last, I don't know, 300 or so years has been, maybe longer than that, has been, uh, let's use mathematics to describe how things work. Right. Things that might be things we construct as humans, things that might be things that exist in nature. But sort of mathematics exists apart from its success or lack of success in describing the physical world. 
And so similarly with the kind of science I've spent a long time building, sort of the, the big idea is to explore this kind of computational universe of possible programs and to understand what's out there in this computational universe. It's then sort of a separate question whether what's out there in this computational universe turns out to be a good description of our particular physical universe. But what happens in the sort of computational universe, you know, one of the big discoveries is that um, even programs whose uh, structure is very simple, things you might write in, you know, one line of Mathematica code or something like this, um, even these incredibly simple programs turn out to be capable of extremely complex behavior. And uh, that fact is something that I think is sort of key to understanding a lot of what happens in nature. It's also a fact that can get used to do lots of technological kinds of things. I mean, it's important in nature because, you know, when we see something complicated go on in nature, whether it's coming from physics or whether it's some biological process or something like this, the natural instinct is if it looks complicated to us, then whatever causes it must be somehow correspondingly complicated. But what we discover from sort of this basic science of the computational universe is that that doesn't have to be true. There can be extremely simple programs in the computational universe that can lead to incredibly complicated behavior much like what nature seems to use uh, to, to do the things that we see it doing. So this sounds a little bit like, like uh, the work you did early on with, comp with the cellular automata. Right. So, so it emerged from that. So, so kind of the, uh, uh, I originally thought, uh, well, originally I was interested in kind of physics and cosmology and all sorts of things like that. And I kind of asked myself, how did all this complicated stuff that we see in the universe come to be? And I thought, well, let me find the very simplest possible model. And my initial idea was, let me go to the point where my model is so simple that it doesn't work at all. But so simple that it will never produce any of the interesting things we see in the universe. You mean like Conway's life? That's the, that's the first thing that leaps to my mind. Well, so the things I looked at are, are even simpler than that. They're things that just involve, for example, a, a line of black and white cells, and then at every step you say, what will the, the cell right underneath a particular cell be? And you kind of evolve it down the page. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no, you know, you're not making a video, you're just making a picture, so to speak. Right. Um, and so the issue then is uh, that there are, uh, among the sort of the simplest possible rules of uh, determining, you know, the color of a cell, black or white, based on the color of the cell above it and to its left or right, there are 256 of those rules. And, and I kind of, my, my first assumption was something as simple as that it's always going to produce very trivial behavior. And I guess I was, uh, uh, well, I don't know, um, obstinate enough that um, uh, I decided sometime in the uh, beginning of the 80s um, that I would actually just do the experiment on a computer because conveniently at that time I was you know, involved with computers. I knew lots about how to do actual computer experiments and so on. Um, I decided uh, one day to actually just do the experiment and just see what happened with all those 256 uh, different simplest cellular automaton rules. And the big surprise was they didn't all do trivial things. Hmm. Some of them did. Uh, the, the most famous one probably is rule th number 30. You can number these things in a simple way, uh, where you just started off from one black cell, and it makes this really complicated kind of random-looking pattern. Um, and that's, uh, uh, that's sort of the... Uh, I, I, I view that as kind of the iconic version of, of uh, what ended up sort of leading me to, to this new kind of science. Um, it's sort of the, uh, uh, the, the, the example of how I think, for example, nature often makes complicated stuff, even though its rules are very simple. And kind of when I first saw the thing, you know, I said, this can't possibly be right. There must be some way in which 
uh, by using some fancy mathematical technique or something, I can recognize that this picture that seems so complicated um, is actually uh, has some sort of uh, 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 shadow of the fact that it came from a very simple rule. There must be some some evidence of the simplicity of its underlying rule in the actual final picture that got made. So you know, you run the thing for a million steps, a billion steps, whatever, and you keep on asking, you know, does it somehow resolve into something simple? Well, I did a bunch of those experiments, and I kept on realizing, no, it doesn't resolve into something simple. And uh, that was that was a big affront to my intuition because I kind of figured that, you know, like when we do engineering, for example, if we want to make something that looks really complicated or that behaves in a very complicated way, we're used to having to do a lot of work. We're used to having to, you know, uh, do um, all kinds of software engineering or something to create this program that has very complicated behavior, these kinds of things. Um, but this was a case where even though the rule was incredibly simple, the behavior that it produced was, for all I could tell, sort of as complicated as anything. And that, that, was, that was sort of the thing that launched me in the direction of, uh, of building this, this new kind of science. I mean, in order to do the science, I ended up realizing at some point that I needed to build uh, better tools to sort of do the exploration. I mean, it's kind of like uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a distinguished earlier period of science, um, you know, when people were first thinking about astronomy and so on, you know, there was the, the kind of the big breakthrough that happened when, when, you know, when Galileo was able mm. to sort of make a good, better telescope and, uh, and turn the thing at the moon and at, the, uh, and at Jupiter and so on and, and see what was going on out there. So similarly, for myself, I kind of figured I needed a better telescope, so to speak, to be able to uh, uh, look out into this computational universe. And that was one of the big reasons that I ended up building a Mathematica system um, to sort of have the, uh, have the, the, the tool that would allow me to kind of go and uh, explore the computational universe in an effective way. So do you think it's uh, safe to say that the better we understand the universe, the simpler it, its rules will be? Well, so remember, there are two universes running around here. One is the computational universe of possible programs. It's a very abstract thing. Right. You know, we can invent any program on once. One can see what it does. That Those are sort of... The, the, the places in that computational universe are kind of the different possible programs. Right. That's sort of the first thing. The second thing is our physical universe. And the big question is, if we look, our physical universe probably behaves according to some definite rules. If it doesn't, well, then we'll never have a theory for it. But let's assume that it does. Then the question is, where do those rules, where are those rules in this computational universe of possible rules? Are they... Uh, rules that are easy to find are they that are quite small and simple are they rules that are way out there you know the quintillion quintillion quintillionth uh, possible rule in this computational universe of possible rules and so that's a question you know it, it's a it's a difficult question to know the answer to is is our universe sort of the equivalent of a billion line program a five line program a you know 200 line program we don't know and right now, we don't really have a basis for figuring out uh, the answer to that kind of question. I mean, the, the only thing we know, which is sort of a very basic fact about science and the universe and so on, is that there is order in the universe. It's not obvious there would be. I mean, there are maybe 10 to the 90th particles in our universe, and it could be that, you know, every one of them would have its own special rules and would just do its own thing. But one of the big things that we know it's a point that's been made by you know, theologians, scientists, whatever, for a few thousand years, 
is that uh, there is order in the universe. The universe is not as complicated as it could possibly be. There are definite rules by which the universe operates. Now, the question is, it could still be the case that those rules, while they're definite, are really complicated. And, you know, if we look at the history of physics, one of the things that's a little bit disappointing is that, that it seems like every time we kind of investigate more in physics, we discover that things are more complicated than we thought before. It doesn't seem like we're kind of uh, gradually going as we look at smaller and smaller length scales or something like that to a resolution where we'll discover that actually it's all really simple underneath there. Um, I think that that's an illusion. I think that, in fact, it's very much like the, um, the intuition that one gets from things like this Rule 30 cellular automaton, that one is used to the idea that when things look complicated, they really are complicated underneath. But I think what one realizes from things like Rule 30 is that that doesn't have to be the case, mm. that there can, in fact, be really simple underlying rules. So then the question is, for our universe, you know, I don't know whether the underlying rules are really, really simple or just kind of simple. And if they're really, really simple, then there's a good chance that if we just sort of test possible rules for the universe, then after we've tested a decent number of rules, we'll actually just come across the rules for our particular universe. And in, in, Is that the investigative process that you propose? Well, so we don't know whether the rules for our universe are simple enough that that kind of exhaustive search can work. Ah. And we don't have any basis for guessing. However, it seems sort of embarrassing if the rules for our universe actually are simple enough that and they could be look. found by that kind of right, search right. and nobody looked. Right. <laughs> now, you know, as a practical matter, obviously, uh, you know, I've, I've been interested in doing this kind of search. So what actually happens? You know, that they, for a while I used to have a, a big computer in my basement that um, – uh, used to tell people we're searching for the universe just because it's kind of a weird thing to do. Um, but uh, uh, as a practical matter, what happens is you, make, you find a candidate universe. You, you set up a candidate universe. You set up some definite rules for how space and time might work and all this kind of thing. They're very, they're very abstract rules because by the time you're dealing with, with uh, a sort of something that's that far below kind of things like space and time and so on, they don't seem very familiar at all. They're rules that involve networks and all, all kinds of things can describe in great technical detail, but, but not, not, not the place. Um, I think the, uh, the, the main thing is that when, when you set up one of these sort of candidate rules, you say, well, okay, given that this was the rule for the universe, what would the universe be like? And the way you find that out is, well, you just run the universe, starting from the very beginning, you let it run and see what it does. Now, many of these candidate universes are obviously hopeless. They, you know, time stops after three clicks or something, right, right. or space is uh, infinite dimensional or something like this. Um, so they're obviously not our universe. There are the ones that are somehow, uh, there are the ones that are sort of simple enough that you can use traditional mathematical methods to kind of be able to say everything about what happens in that universe. Again, obviously not our universe because our universe isn't as simple as that. But what happens is, Every so often, you'll find a candidate universe. You don't have to go very far, maybe a thousand candidate universes. You'll start finding ones where the behavior is really pretty complicated. You run it for a billion steps. Maybe if you're lucky and you have a big enough computer, you can run it for a trillion steps. Hmm. And still, it's blobbing around and doing all kinds of complicated things. And then the big question is, okay, so this thing that we just ran for the equivalent of some infinitesimal fraction of a second of sort of universe, physical universe time, if we were to run it for, for 14 billion years, 
would it be just like our universe today? Right. Well, that's a hard question to answer, and it's not there's sort of a theoretical problem that's all related to undecidability and Gödel's theorem and this phenomenon I call computational irreducibility that basically tells one that it's sort of it's an irreducible amount of computational work to find out what this universe is going to do and therefore to compare it with our physical universe and that's something that um, uh, we just have to be kind of lucky if to be able to find things that allow us to sort of jump ahead in this sort of irreducible computational work to compare this kind of candidate universe with our actual universe. So we can't and just throw more hardware at the problem and say put in a string theory and, and, and run it to see if it's true. Well, you know, one's kind of working from two ends. One's working from here's this candidate universe, let's run it and see what it does. On the other end, there's what do we know about our actual universe and what, you know, how far has particle physics or string theory or whatever got in abstracting from all the details of our actual universe to something which is sort of a simpler model that we can then go and, or a, or a more a well-defined model that we can then go and compare with what's happening in our candidate computational universe. Um, but no, it's not a, essentially what we have to do is to sort of uh, recapitulate the history of physics for our candidate universe. We have to go from uh, this sort of phenomenon of what the universe does to sort of abstract what its natural laws are and then compare those natural laws with the natural laws uh, for, um, uh, for the actual universe. So it's something where, um, uh, you know, what, what's nice is that you start seeing some phenomena like uh, various features of space and time and relativity and gravitation, maybe some quantum mechanics. You start seeing phenomena like that. And what's exciting, to me at least, is that from you don't put any of this stuff in. You're starting off from these rules that are just incredibly simple rules about how little tiny networks get rewritten um, in a succession of steps and so on. And from those incredibly simple rules, there emerge these features that are some of the kinds of prides and joys of, of, of physics, like uh, Einstein's you know, special relativity or something like this. Um, it's very non-trivial that one is able to effectively derive those observed features of physics from something as tiny as these kinds of computational models. And so, to me, that's a great encouragement that one's actually on the right track, that if one were to successfully go further, one would not just find these particular sort of fragments of physics, but one would actually find the whole thing. But the, the real question, I think, is, um, is, is our universe, in fact, sort of, uh, w which serial number of possible universe is our actual universe? Right. Um, and uh, it's, it's something, it's a, very, it's a very Copernican kind of question because we're, we're kind of used to, you know, in, in times past, we used to have this very uh, nice um, uh, feeling of specialness because it was like, you know, our uh, life was special, you know, our planet was at the center of the universe, all this kind of thing. Then we discovered, well, actually, that wasn't really true. And uh, instead, we got much more humble and we said, well, we're just a typical, you know, it's just a typical planet and a typical star and a typical galaxy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in a random place in the universe. So now we can get to ask that question for the whole universe. Is our whole universe just a typical random possible universe or is it somehow a special low serial number simple universe? We don't know the answer. Um, and I think that there's, the question is a little different for, for sort of the whole universe, maybe, than it is for sort of our place in the universe, just because, uh, well, sort of at a, at a technical level, it's kind of that, that what, you know, which integer is 
the is the most special integer it's kind of a funny mm. question because the integers go on forever and it's not clear how you identify that and and, and so on um but uh, uh actually i have some guesses about usually when there are questions like this about um uh it's sort of a funny science question i mean i you know i think about history of science a whole bunch and i, I say to myself you know what's the analog of this question from history of science and you know it'll be very exciting if we can say well this particular universe that we found in some in some sophisticated way turns out to be actually our universe and this particular universe is serial number you know 3214 or something or 42 um, <laughs> right or 42 well, i know it's not i in the enumeration that i've looked at i know it's not 42. Ah, you've been through 42 that's so I, sad to hear <laughs> how, many, how many sets have you gone through i mean are you still going through sets are you still crunching these numbers in your basement well uh yes not so much in the last year or two because unfortunately or fortunately uh the world of technology has gotten really exciting and so i've been uh, uh spending most of my available personal cycles on that rather than on universe hunting but um uh, and, it's kind and, of like SETI. it's kind of like a SETI process could it be yeah, distributed maybe. yeah right well i'll tell you what the problem is so i thought that that was going to be the direction it would go i thought i'd be searching trillions of possible universes right. and that it would all be very distributed and i was thinking about you know how to do it in as parallel a way as possible turned out i was wrong about the problem uh it turns out that even you don't have to go very far in the space of possible candidate universes before you find ones where you have no idea whether they're our universe or not. You don't have a test. Well, the problem is that you start them running and they do complicated things. Right. They're nice, rich, sophisticated universes. Maybe they have uh, all kinds of things that are analogous to people doing radio shows in some time right. in the future, but we don't know whether they're our particular universe or not. Um, and uh, that, that's the problem, yes. We don't, we don't have a test for whether it's our particular universe. So it's not really a problem of let's distribute and let's you know, be able to check trillions of universes. It's more uh, we've got candidates, but we need to do the difficult science right. of seeing how they match up with our actual universe. And, and kind of I, I sort of know what to do, but it's funny because maybe it's um, – uh, you know, it's just a technically complicated thing. It'll be a complicated sort of software engineering effort to sort of build all the, the, the essentially monitoring equipment for these universes um, to see what they're doing and to, and to be able to figure out whether they correspond to our actual universe. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to doing this. this is, uh, I've sort of tagged it as my next really big project to, to try and do these kinds of things. Are others, um, are others working on this or is it a, a solo effort or? Well, I mean, I, I have a, a, a... I know you I, have I, a I, team, but... Yeah, I have a team of people, but I mean, in terms of, of uh, this direction and in, in figuring out how physics might work, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think so, and, the, and, the, and it's kind of a shame. Um, you know, there's been physics as a field, you know, I, I, uh, in my younger years, I was a, a card-carrying particle physicist who um, uh, did all those... Um, uh, those fun kinds of things in the in the official physics way and so on. When you were 14, um, as a matter of fact. Yes, yes. <laughs> Much younger. <laughs> yes, right. The, the, um, uh, but, but um, you know, physics as a field has become quite mature. You know, there are definite lines of development. People work on them. It's uh, the idea that one sort of uses a completely different methodological stack is uh, it's, well, it's not really doesn't really seem like physics. You know, right. physics seems right. like the thing that has this particular methodological stack. Right. So, you know, what, what's ended up um, 
it's it's kind of um, uh, this project, in a sense, has to be worked on by people who don't know physics. I mean, it's useful to know some physics for some pieces of it, but most of what you need to know is this sort of big stack of new kind of science type stuff and uh, theoretical computer science and practical algorithm development and a little bit of dash of traditional physics here and there, but most of it is really not methodologically like traditional physics. Does observational um, physics help in this? Do things like Large Hadron Collider or cosmic microwave background radiation observations, does that help in that narrowing or is it all totally separate from that? Well, you know, here's the thing. If the rules for the universe are really simple, then sort of everything has to fit in that tiny, that tiny set of rules. And the difference between one tiny set of rules and another tiny set of rules is going to be very big. So the difference between one set of rules and another set of rules might be space goes from being three-dimensional to being seven-and-a-half-dimensional. And the question of whether the you know, mass of the charm quark is exactly 1.5 GeV or you know, 1.78 GeV or something is kind of not likely to be the point. It's insufficient. That is, yeah. once you, once, you know, the, as you turn the knob to go from one model to another, if the model is simple, that little turn of the knob is going to change a zillion things. Right. Now, you know, it will be really neat if one can successfully find something where one says, this is physics, but by the way, it has this weird extra prediction that says that if you look at cosmology in this particular, you know, if you look at some detail of the cosmic microwave background, if you look at, uh, you know, what happens at, you know, 10 TeV in some, um, in some particle collision, then guess what? It will do something totally bizarre that seems very different from what the traditional models of physics have, have said. And of course, if that happens, then from a sociological point of view, if people go out and do the experiment and do it correctly, um, and that's not a trivial issue because often these experiments where people have a, a sort of strong emotional for or against kind of thing, it's very hard to get those experiments done correctly. Um, but, uh, you know, assuming it's, it's done correctly and it turns out the model is right, then it's sociologically very significant because people say, wow, that was a surprise and it came out right. And so then everybody says, well, this model must be right. Um, then that's, that's uh, you know, then, then sort of the case is closed, so to speak. Um, and, but I, I'm afraid I'm not that hopeful that the features of our universe, that there will be features of our universe that are sort of surprising uh, and within reach uh, of kind of the, the our current uh, generation of kinds of observational uh, techniques. I mean, I think it's it's sort of there's there's two sides to this. I mean, one is will we be able to do the sort of computational work to validate whether our model universe is actually our universe, and then will our sort of will our and can that be done in sort of the the current uh, epoch of computational development, um, and then can we do sort of observational things in the current epoch of observational development? I'm looking at a 1987 uh, article from Academic Computing talking about tablet computing. Is that the kind of thing that you're pretty uh, excited about what's going on today? Is that when you say technology well, is exciting I'm, yes, you today? Yes, to some extent. I mean, I've, I've got a little iPad 2 sitting on my, my desk here that I was just playing with, and it's, it's kind of funny that that, um, you predicted that it. project... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It's interesting. You know, I, I, I'm always more interested in the things I get wrong than the things I get right. Right. Um, I thought that the, um, uh, you know, we, we kind of sat down and, and this was a sort of a project that I did with um, uh, uh, some students at um, the university way back in, um, 
uh, in 87, as you said. Um, and uh, it was kind of a, so what would the personal computer of the year 2000 be like? And, you know, I think what's disappointing is that so much of it was obvious. Yeah, in a way. I mean, I'm reading the insight is that with truly portable computational communication tools, we are not restricted to working in the office or at home. We can work anywhere. Tablet will provide access to anything we are used to having at the office, so there's no reason not to work some somewhere else. Video conferencing will be vital if people are able to communicate effectively from afar. Uh, you predict uh -huh. pretty much everything. Except Angry Birds. <laughs> Except Angry Birds. <laughs> That's right. I haven't looked at that article recently, but I'm sure that, uh, you know, it was funny because that article was written at a time when um, uh, I was working on a bunch of software development for Mathematica, and it specifically didn't mention much about software because uh, uh, that was kind of what I was doing, you know, behind the scenes, so to speak. Right. So it particularly concentrated on hardware kinds of things. You do say that the notion of programming will change substantially. Programs in low-level languages like C will start dying out like dinosaurs. I'm not sure that actually has happened. Filling their ecological niche will be scripts for high-level interpretive systems. That's true on the web, for sure. Yeah, 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 right. It, yeah, it's uh, well, it's uh, right. It, it's still amazing that people write their apps in Objective C, so to speak, right down at <laughs> right. the level of the of, right. of sand, so to speak. I mean, one of the things that um, has happened recently that I've been kind of long waiting for is, uh, uh, you know, I've been involved in developing programming languages for a long time, so I'm a big enthusiast of sort of what does it mean to make a programming language, and I'm sort of uh, have spent, you know, God knows how many zillions of thousands of hours, you know, trying to make sure that the Mathematica programming language is nice and clean and develops well and so on. Um, and that's sort of the, uh, you know, where, where kind of the concept of the programming language is, you think about all these pieces of computation that people might want to do, and you try and pick out what are the right primitives, what are the right kind of underlying words um, right. that... Uh, uh, that people can use to kind of build up the programs they need to do in the most convenient possible way. You know, I spent lots of effort on sort of what's the cleanest way to do that. But one of the things that one thinks about is, okay, there's certain kinds of people where you can think about things in this nice, clean way and so on. There are other kinds of people who say, well, I just want to tell my computer what to do. I just want to say, in the language that I already know, my human natural language, um, I want to be able to just, you know, talk to my computer and tell it what to do. Well, one of the things that I've sort of long been interested in is could one merge the notion of understanding natural language with the notion of this kind of precise language that one sets mm. up for programming languages? Um, mm. And one of the things that happened last few months, actually, um, is sort of a development I find quite exciting with Mathematica and with Wolfram Alpha, um, where we're able to use kind of the linguistic prowess of Wolfram Alpha to let people type in kind of natural language English uh, uh, sort of specifications and have those automatically turned into precise mathematical programs that can then be run or can be assembled from these small programs into bigger and bigger programs. So it's kind of, that, that's something I find kind of interesting. It's a case where we can, first of all, we can very much democratize this process of programming and go from something where, you know, you kind of have to learn the special secret language of programming to be able to do it to something where you can just use the language you, you know, learnt in your, uh, you know, first few years, so to speak, uh, natural language, um, to be able to kind of tell the computer what to do. Of I course, wasn't sure it was... Of course, language, uh, you know, I've always thought language forms uh, how you think about things is formed by your, your language, your choice of languages. And I've also always thought for a long time computer programming is really not about telling the computer what to do, but a, a, a syntax for describing ideas and algorithms. 
Yes, I think that's that's a, that's an interesting point. And for example, you know, the kind of the Sapo-Whorf hypothesis about human languages, namely the structure of the language determines right. kind of how you think about things. Right. I think that is all the more true for computer languages. Right. Um, and I certainly know, you know, in, in Mathematica where we have functional programming and pattern-based programming and, and, and symbolic programming and so on, um, the kinds of, of, of conceptualizations that people make of programs and of, of how they should uh, implement algorithms and such like is very different from what they would think of right. when they were working in some low-level language. Right. But I think it's... it's um, uh, so, you know, it is certainly the case that um, uh, one of the things I've noticed for myself, you know, I'm a obviously experienced mathematical programmer by now. Um, it's uh, uh, when I, it's an interesting question, when I sort of think about how to uh, write some algorithm or something, I'll often be able to start typing the Mathematica code before I could possibly verbalize what wow. this algorithm is supposed to do. Perfect, um, yeah. You're and fluent in mathematics. It's a perfect illustration. I do want to talk about Wolfram Alpha. Before we do, though, I just want to read the last sentence from this 1987 article on the, the future of the personal computer. The last sentence is, the sooner Apple gets to work on it, the better for everyone. 24 years later, they finally did it, Stephen. <laughs> yes, yes, right. <laughs> that was prescient. At least that was prescient. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so, no, I mean, on, on this... Uh, well, just just to finish, because it was an interesting... It's a great sort of conversation. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Continue, please. No, no. I mean, the, the, this, this point about uh, uh, you know, using the computer language as a way to structure your own thinking. Right. And uh, what, I mean, one thing that's sort of interesting in, um, oh, for instance, in mathematics, people think about proof as uh, something... I mean, proof is partly knowing it's true, but actually... Uh, Proof in mathematics is a much less good test of whether you got the right answer than sort of writing a piece of software and doing software quality assurance on it. Hmm. But the real role of proof is to kind of provide a framework for explaining to people how things work mm -hmm. and thinking it through for yourself, sort of structuring your thinking. But what one realizes at some point is that computer languages are an even better way to kind of structure one's thinking about how something should be set up. And so long as one has a, quote, good computer language that doesn't require one to sort of waste lots of effort, it's kind of working through the, the kind of uh, the, the weird features of the um, underlying computer hardware or something, then it's a really good thing. I mean, I think that's a, that's a general theme, and certainly in, in developing Mathematica, one of my big kind of objectives is, you know, automate as much as possible. So kind of the idea is, this is a computer language. Let's let the computer do everything the computer can do. Let's leave for the human only those parts that really require sort of the strategic human decision. Uh, let's make it so that basically you just have to say, well, I want to do this, and then the computer will as much as possible automate how it's actually going to get done. You know, if there are a hundred different algorithms that you could choose for, you know, doing some particular graphics thing or some such other thing, the computer will automatically choose which of those algorithms to use. So you can just sort of delegate uh, to the computer all of those sort of mechanical details. Do you but, think there's a contradiction, though? That's why I bring this up between human, la you know, getting better at human understanding human language versus teaching a structured syntax designed for expressing and solving problems. Well, I think that they are complementary. Okay. So what I found in using natural language programming with Mathematica is that there are certain kinds of things where it's very, well, what I'm doing is part of some very kind of systematic, structured area of, of, uh, 
uh, sort of algorithmic space or something. Mm-hmm. And there's other times when it's kind of a weird special case. It's, you know, I don't know, uh, I don't know, find a complementary color or something. You know, okay, there's a, that's part of some systematic uh, development about color triangles and things like that. But it's a lot easier for me to just say, you know, complementary color to purple or something right. um, than it is to figure out, okay, you know, I have RGB color and I have to do this and I have to do that. Maybe not the best example, I'm not sure. Um, but so what I found is that there are, there are some things where the, it's sort of connected to this very structured, it's sort of a case where there's some kinds of operations where kind of all possible operations like that are worth considering doing. Hmm. Where somebody's going to want to do at some point for some reason sort of all possible operations that are that correspond to let's say different arrangements of the language primitives. Right. Then there are other places that are much more much sparser, where for whatever reason, because of the way the world is set up, because of the way humans do things or something, there are just a few little scattered cases that are relevant, um, or that there are things that relate to kind of the world. So, so for example, you know, in developing Wolfram Alpha. One of the things that was, in a sense, quite, oh, I don't know, scary to me was, was this. You know, in doing Mathematica, we build everything up very systematically. There's a set of concepts. We build it up. It's all very, you know, very structured and systematic. Then in Wolfram Alpha, we're trying to deal with sort of the whole messiness of the world. Right. You know, in Mathematica, it's like, okay, what are the possible, I don't know, uh, ways that geometry can be set up for this type of system? What are the possible, I don't know, even polyhedra or something? Okay. Uh, what are the possible sort of uh, arrangements of nested function calls, things like this? In Wolfram Alpha, it's, uh, I don't know, what are the cities that happen to exist in, uh, you know, Germany? Right. What are the uh, administrative divisions of some country that draws its administrative divisions in a bizarre way? You know, what happens when there's a country that has... Uh, you know, more than one city it views as its capital city. There are all these weird sort of uh, particular to the world special cases, or even doesn't have to be the human world. It could be, you know, oh, every, you know, every substance has a, a melting point. So you think, until you think about helium, for example, which doesn't happen to, uh, uh, at normal pressure, doesn't happen to freeze even at absolute zero. Um, so, you know, there are all these weird sort of uh, special cases of the, of the world as it actually is. And the question is, how do you deal with that? Um, and can you deal with that in a sort of systematic computational way? Um, and that's sort of a big part of, of the effort in Wolfram Alpha is to think about how do you build frameworks that can let you deal with this kind of uh, the way the world actually is. And one of the things that's nice when we, as we could imagine sort of making a completely systematic language, but it would be very inefficient because the the ways that we describe things with all the special cases that we've sort of historically evolved in our natural language are much are pretty good ways to describe the world as it happens to be with all of its sparse, weird special cases and so on. So, you know, that's a case where, again, natural language is the right medium, I think, for telling the computer what you want to do rather than having to be very, very systematic about it because what you're describing is ultimately not a systematic kind of thing. Yeah, you don't know what you want to do. That's one of the wonderful things about Wolfram Alpha is this serendipity of entering something like carbon and the variety of information that you get. Some of this will be an answer to a specific question, but it's all serendipitous and fascinating. I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking Wolfram Alpha is Google. It's not a search engine. Are, they're, yeah. they're different things. But, but from what you're describing about natural language processing... Uh, Wolfram Alpha sounds very similar to the problem that IBM was solving with Watson 
what what did you think of that, and how how does that differ from what you're doing? Well, so I mean, it, it was a it was great because among other things, it kind of showed people that uh, sort of finding information isn't just about being a search engine. There's sort of more to answering right. questions right. than sort of being a search engine and getting a page of links. I think the um, uh, in a sense, Watson is a is a great evolutionary example of a pretty long uh, development track in kind of information retrieval and text retrieval and so on. Um, and it's actually the same, it has the same lineage as search engines, although they diverged at some point in the past. And kind of the concept is you've got a certain corpus of text and you break it up into little snippets and then you're asked, given the question that's coming in, can you match that question that's coming in with something in the corpus of text that you've been given? And for example, you know, I, I don't actually watch television very often, but I sort of made a, a ceremonial moment out of watching <laughs> the um, uh, the Jeopardy thing and seeing uh, uh, seeing what happened there. And Same one here. of the things I was really struck by was if you looked at the kind of um, uh, the the candidate answers that Watson was producing. Wasn't that fascinating? Uh, yeah. Yes, but what was what was to me as kind of a uh, uh, a nerd in this area, um, you know, I noticed the miscapitalization of some of the words. Ah. And I noticed that uh, occasionally there was there was one case where there was a word and there was a two after it. Hmm. And what that shows one is those are text snippets. Right. The two was there because it was a dictionary definition, right. and the snippet included the two from the dictionary. Interesting. And the capitalization was the way it was because those are the ways that these words had happened to occur in particular sentences right. or whatever else. Right. So essentially what, what was going on there was a way of a, a good, you know, the, the main technological sort of development, I think, was sort of the scoring mechanism for figuring out, okay, we've got this question, now what text snippets are kind of near that right. uh, in, in our text corpus, what text snippets are kind of appropriately related to that question? Um, actually, it was sort of interesting. I did kind of a test of search engines. It was interesting, you know, practical test because we, we work with a bunch of these guys and it's, it's, um, it's interesting to see how their, how their technology does. Um, you know, I did the test of you just type in Jeopardy questions um, <laughs> and you say, you look at the first search engine result page and you say, is the answer to the Jeopardy question somewhere on that search engine result page? And the answer is about 70% of the time it is. Mm. Now, you know, Watson was doing something more than that. It was not only giving me a whole page of, uh, of output, it was saying this particular word or this particular phrase is the answer. It was, it was sort of going uh, the last step there. But it was sort of interesting to see that, um, that comparison. But so, so kind of the, the Watson and search engine idea is you've got this big corpus of text and it's written in human natural language. You somehow break it up into snippets. And then in the case of search engines, you do pure indexing. In the case of Watson, you do, uh, you know, you index it and then you do all kinds of ranking to try and figure out which part of that text is the one that wants to be returned as the answer. So that's, that's kind of that methodology. It's, it's kind of uh, a, uh, a match up the input with the corpus that you've been given. What we're trying to do with Wolfram Alpha is something that is just much crazier, right? It's much more kind of radical, differ? extreme kind of thing. So what we're doing is you type a piece of input. We try and turn that piece of input into something that is a symbolic representation that is a precise computable representation of that input. So there's... We don't care what the actual textual representation of anything is, ultimately. We, what we care about is what our precise internal computational representation is. 
And then in terms of the knowledge that's in the system, what we're doing is we're saying, how do we, how do we, we, we have this knowledge that's very, very structured. It's, it has nothing to do with human natural language. It's kind of uh, big arrays of numbers and algorithms and things like this. And we say, how do we take this, this thing that we understood that's kind of a precise computational representation of the question, and how do we compute the answer from that question? Um, and that's the, uh, uh, that, that's sort of the idea. Now, it's not obvious you can do that at all. I mean, it's uh, the fact that you can turn a lot of the world into computational stuff is not obvious. Um, it certainly wasn't obvious to me. You know, we've now gone through probably a thousand, a few thousand different domains of sort of human endeavor um, and uh, sort of facts about the world and so on and made them computable in this kind of way. Um, and, you know, it gets, it gets gradually easier in some sense after you've done a thousand domains. The thousand and first domain is sort of easier. But the thing that's kind of shocking to me is always uh, every new thing you do, um, there will be new little twists and curlicues that you haven't seen before. But the good news is that we have sort of a, a general enough computational framework that we're able to kind of handle all those different things. But so, you know, in the case of Wolfram Alpha, what we're doing is, uh, you know, for a search engine or for Watson, um, it's basically limited in what it can tell you to things that exist somehow in the corpus of text that it's been given. And it's going to sort of regurgitate um, a piece of the actual natural language that was in that text. What we're doing is to say, given the knowledge that exists that we've put into a computable form, can we compute an answer to the particular question you've asked? Now, maybe that answer has never been computed before. Maybe you're asking something about some, you know, combination of chemicals or some, uh, uh, I don't know, some, some particular, uh, I don't know, financial analysis question or some uh, combination of cities that you want to know something about. New York um, Yankees versus Boston Red Sox is a fun search. <laughs> right. right. So we're, we're, we're still working on. We're about to have much more spectacular stuff in the sports area. That's been an area that we've been, uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, we've been kind of not, um, uh, not jumping into with, with as much energy as, uh, yeah. as other areas. But we, uh, this year, that area will become uh, very hard. wonderful. It's hard to keep up to date, but I'm sure there's a lot of interest. Right. But, but, but so, I mean, the, you know, the, the basic idea is, you know, we're in a sense trying to create fresh, new insights, knowledge. Yeah rather than kind of rely on what people mm -hmm. happen to have written down or thought about right. before. It sounds to me like instead of interpreting a question for its meaning, if, if I have this right, you're sort of looking for that, what the representation of that question in, in the computational universe is, and then you're, you're computing an answer. And so it doesn't matter what the meaning of the question is. Well, in, in one sense, it doesn't matter. In another sense, it's all about what the meaning is. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you know, you say New York or something. We have to have a, a very definite computational entity that represents New York City. And if we don't, we'll never be able to figure out what's going on. We'll never be able to compute anything. If we have that definite entity and we have a definite entity for, you know, the, the planet Saturn or something, and then we say, we ask about, you know, viewing Saturn from New York City, then we can compute using celestial mechanics and so on. We can compute, you know, where Saturn is, where the, you know, where, where the Earth is, where New York City is. We can work everything out about what, you know, where you'll see Saturn in the, in the, in the night sky or whatever. Um, but so in a, in a, at that, that level, we, have to, we, we really have to know from the, it's, it's sort of a very high bar. We don't just say, well, here's a bag of words. 
let's just see whether these match up with something that we can see uh, that's, that's in this piece of text we have. Rather, we have to say, turn this, this piece of, of structured input, the piece of input that people have given, and you know, people don't type flowing English into the Wolfram Alpha input box. They type some bizarre combination of fragments of English with some sort of uh, soup of words. Um, it's, it's actually pretty interesting from a, you know, if you're interested in sort of basic linguistics, um, the, uh, there's sort of this whole idea that the way we express language is just sort of a, a, a surface structure of language that's a little different from the deep structure of how we think about the concepts that eventually get expressed in language. Uh, I, I have to say, I think that when we look at the input stream for Wolfram Alpha, um, the query stream, um, that what we're seeing is basically lots of uh, deep structure of language kinds of things. We're seeing the way, the way people choose to type things in and sort of quickly say in a few, however many hundreds of milliseconds it takes them to type something in, they're, um, uh, uh, they're, it's sort of straight from their brain um, in the most uh, direct way, in the way that they're thinking about whatever concept it is, they're entering it, and that's what we get to see in our query stream. I've always so suspected that English teachers are trying to keep me from expressing deep structure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it's fun because, in a sense, we always, um, uh, we often refer to the kind of the niceties of English as fluff, right? We're interested in defluffing. Um, inputs that we're given because when somebody says, you know, what is the uh, price of Microsoft stock today? You know, what we eventually care about is Microsoft stock, you know, price today. Um, now, it's not just that in that particular case, um, those words could appear probably in pretty much any order, but often there will be some grammatical structure that, uh, that needs to be preserved. It's not just sort of a soup of words, but it's sort of interesting that when we express ourselves conversationally to other humans, there's a lot of kind of extra fluff that goes into what we say that uh, I think has sort of a purpose of a certain degree of redundancy, which provides some robustness in our conversation that uh, doesn't need to be there right. and doesn't end up being there in these, in these kind of query streams and so on. There, the, I, I remember looking at, and I don't, I'm looking at the site and I don't see it, but I'm sure it's here somewhere at a fascinating discussion of how you parse what you get and uh, break it down and, and, and what Wolfram Alpha does with it. And it's just fascinating. It's just a, it's a re and I'm sure that the process is constantly refined. We're running out of time. I don't want to take too much of your time, Stephen. I know you're very busy. Um, I, people should absolutely uh, look at Wolfram Alpha. There's uh, Wolfram Alpha for the iPad, which I use, which I love. Of course, it's free to use on the web. And you're now doing, I think this is great, Wolfram Alpha course assistance in uh, a number, right. number of different areas. And my son is in Algebra 2. This is so cool. I'm so thrilled you're doing this. Uh, Mathematics is a little above his head, but there's a lot to be gained from your Algebra um, app. Thanks. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of the plan is, you know, Wolfram Alpha attempts to be kind of the, the broad, complete computational knowledge engine for everything in the world. Um, what we realized is that uh, in, in the modern times, modern kind of app times, um, it's often convenient for people to just have a particular app right. that is structured in a way that um, uh, is, um, uh, is specific to what they're doing. And we have a, a line of, of course apps that will be coming out with the, the kind of the, the tagline for the program is kind of uh, an app for every course. And I think over the course of this year, we'll... we'll a pretty long way towards achieving that and then the there's kind of a whole sequence of other kinds of apps 
uh, for example, aimed at different professions. So, like, we have a sysadmin app that will be coming out soon. Great. Can't wait. But it's it's fun, you know, you say, I want a certain kind of level of RAID disk drive, and I want it to be, you know, 10 terabytes, and, you know, how many disks do I have to get, and so That's on, great. or it will be all sorts of stuff. I was just looking at this and realizing that I thought I understood how IP addresses worked and how subnets worked and so on, and realized that actually it was more complicated than I thought. But uh, uh, with this app, I'd be, still be able to figure out what was going on. That's so um, great. I love that. Yeah. I see you have algebra, calculus, and music theory now, chemistry, astronomy, physics, multivariable calculus, accounting, statistics, and more coming. Yes, much yeah. more, much I, more. I so can't the, wait to get a sysadmin app. Yeah, yeah. the sysadmin one will be fun, and there's, there's a couple of other professional ones that are coming in the next few weeks, I hope. One is uh, uh, a machinist's app wow. for working out, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to, I don't know much about this area, I have to say. You're trying to... Um, uh, use some kind of milling machine and right. you've got some kind of steel and you push it at a certain rate and so on and it can because we know all the sort of physics of, of these things and we know properties of all these materials right. um, we can do a really nice job I think in, in figuring that stuff out and then in a kind of a, a curious um, uh, just sort of a, a test case we were you know we we're sort of picking different professions we were going to try and make these apps for we thought um, uh, different kind of profession is where we have a, a lawyer's app coming out, huh. which um, includes sort of uh, the simplest level things like calendar computations and financial computations, but also lots of kind of uh, uh, com computational things relevant to uh, all sorts of good and bad things that happen in the world in, in, uh, in kind of legal terms. All right, pre like looking at precedents and, and things or just general principles? No, I mean, things like, uh, you know, if, you, if you're trying to figure out, you know, what was the weather like on such and such a day in such uh -huh, and such a place? Uh -huh, uh -huh. What was, uh, uh, you know, if you're worrying about, um, you know, what was the typical, um, uh, what was the typical uh, earnings of a person in such and such a city and such and such a profession, these kinds of, these kinds of things. Well, you're going to be cited in court cases. Yeah. Wolfram Alpha is such an amazing resource, and I think... Maybe a little challenging uh, for people. They should go to wolframalpha.com and enter some examples. You know, they have examples. Play with the examples to get some sense of what's possible. And then your mind will be blown. And it is such a great resource. And we're so grateful to you, uh, Stephen, Thanks. for creating it. We really appreciate it. And thank you for the Easter eggs that are in there, like what is the meaning of life and is the cake a lie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those Easter eggs, are, you know, obviously there's a, there's a team of a few hundred people who work on this and, and you know, some people have become specialists in adding Easter eggs, and other people have become specialists in criticizing the Easter eggs. Ah, uh -huh. I can see that. <laughs> what fun. Stephen, thank you so much for your time and, and, and for the contribution you've made to, uh, to our lives. We appreciate it. Thanks very much. Stephen Wolfram, Wolfram, W-O-L-F-R-A-M, alpha, dot com. Thanks, Stephen. Bye. Take, Take care. Bye-bye. Did you understand any of that? I I was hanging on <laughs> but by this. You know, your mind feels like it's been refreshed in a spring shower of ideas. Well, yeah, what so it is, fun. it's like, you know, I see the outline of what he's talking about. And I want to drill down in and say, okay, well, when you're talking about that computational universe, it right. sounds to me like this. Am I getting it right? Right. You know, uh, well, that's why it's fun to stuff. get the chance to ask questions. I yeah. Mean. Uh, it's uh, I, I, you almost don't want to stop him because he's such fascinating things. If you go to his uh, personal website, that's where there's a scrapbook of a lot of information. It ties well into Wolfram Alpha. That article, that prescient article from 1987, is there describing what a new computing device in 2000 would look like. They got it off by 11 years, but 
in the grand scheme of the cosmos, that's that's pretty accurate. Well, they even say it's impossible to predict anything, uh, and we're crazy to try. But here's here goes, and surprisingly, right on. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We do triangulation Wednesdays when we have a guest, and uh, sometimes we don't, but most of the time we do. Uh, we've got we we're planning to have um, the fascinating Ray Kurzweil on. He's decided to defer it to next month because that's when his new book comes out. So we'll get him on next month, and lots of other good people coming. Can't out. wait to talk to Kurzweil. Eileen's booking some great people for us. So tune in every Wednesday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, live.twit.tv, and who knows, somebody great may be on, stimulating your mind. You may find out that the meaning of life is not 42. Shocking. And the cake isn't a lie. It's not. But for that information, go to WolframAlpha.com. For Tom Merritt, I'm Leo Laporte. Thanks for joining us on Triangulation.